Hey, Nice Games Club listeners. So we're from Minneapolis. We say that on every episode, um, or we're near enough. And if you've been following the news, you know that this uh, this last weekend was a very uh, eventful weekend in Minneapolis. We had protests, there's been police violence. I just wanted to let you know that we're all safe, um, physically safe, and we want to spend some time in the next episode spend, uh, talking about these incidents and and what they've meant for us personally. But today, we're not going to talk about that. We're just going to go to our regular episode. So tune in again next week to kind of hear our reactions and thoughts on on current events. Yeah, um, we did leave uh, a few notes in the show notes where you can donate um, to help people. Um, there's a like one example is we love Um There's also George Floyd's family's GoFundMe um, and the other examples, too. So if you um, are able uh, please use those links to donate. Uh, so until you hear more from us next week, uh, stay safe. And uh, we love Minneapolis and we love you too. From multiple high-priced locations in Minneapolis or near enough, this is Nice Games Club, the show where nice games devs talk gaming and game development. I'm Ellen Burns Johnson, and I make nice games. I'm Steve McGregor, and I make nice games. And I'm Martha Croy, and I too make nice games. For this week's episode, our topics are leadership and pricing. And so, if everyone's ready, let's start. Woo. I heard the song in my head as you yeah, were you? conducting those last few moments, yeah. Mark. <laughs> yeah. It was like conducting it. <laughs> yeah, we were, we were obviously we're still remote. You know, we're not in the same place. And I think we mentioned this before, but Mark has some great ways of cueing us in. This time there was actual conducting to the beat going on. <laughs> Yeah. It was good. <laughs> this this will never be as entertaining for listeners as it is for us. <laughs> Probably not, no. That's very true. <laughs> uh, so what do we have to talk about today? I heard you were uh, working on uh, a new widget satchel thing. Where'd you hear that? <laughs> From you? <laughs> oh, right. I told you earlier. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yes, yeah, so, um, you know, Widget Satchel's been out for a while, and uh, the game itself, you know, w- stories about that you can hear on previous episodes. But um, recently, I w- uh, got access to the developer preview for a brand new uh, mobile device uh, called the Playdate. We talked about this when it was announced months and months ago. Uh, it's this cute little, uh, almost perfectly square, but not perfectly square, yellow handheld gaming console with a black and white one-bit screen and a crank. It's the cutest little thing. It's made by Panic. Uh, who, so uh, cute. They are, they're a, an, a, a Mac iOS developer that also published uh, Untitled Goose Game. And so they just decided for some reason to get into the hardware biz. And they worked with the, the folks at Teenage Engineering, who are famous for uh, cute little synthesizers, to make this little handheld console. And uh, they uh, invited folks to... to um, it was, a, it was a random drawing to to get part of the developer preview. And the random oh. number generator smiled up upon me. And so <laughs> I got a, a developer <laughs> unit shipped to me, um, one of very few because they uh, their factories had to close down uh, when COVID hit. So there is only about 300 or so uh, developer uh, units, which is, so I feel very, very lucky to have been randomly picked of the people who, who uh, wanted one. And so I'm like, well, what am I going to make for this thing? And I'm like, well, you know what would be great to make for it is a Widget Satchel spinoff. Um, something, <laughs> mm-hmm. some like a uh, little mini game collection featuring Sprocket and Pals uh, that we can use to, you know, uh, uh, expand the universe of Widget Satchel. Because one of the things I loved working on that game 
was um, writing up the the setting and the the places and the characters and the world of Widget Satchel and the expedition, and that was so much fun. And I really want to play in that world more, but I don't want to make a whole. No- I don't want to make Widget Satchel too. Uh, not yet. Anyway. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I've got Metro Nexus. That's really the main thing on my plate. But this thing is in front of me now, and is kind of. I'm happy to take a little bit of break from my other plans to focus on it for a little while. Uh, hopefully, not too long. But um, it just sort of the opportunity came, so I'm going to be toying with that for a little bit, and we'll we'll put a, a screenshot or two in the show notes so you can kind of see what I'm thinking, what I'm working on with it. Um, but yeah, it's uh, for a little while. I sort of had to keep it under wraps um, uh, because uh, they hadn't you know, sent out all the invites yet, and they wanted to keep. Uh, they didn't want a bunch of people to get excited on social media and disappoint the folks who weren't able to get access. But as of now, they're they're so like, okay, you can go ahead and tell people. There was never an NDA or anything like that. Um, mm-hmm. And I've talked on the show before for, uh, to completely change subjects about about NDAs and how I feel about secrets, which is I hate them. Um, but in this case, you know, they were, it was a case of just like, uh, they asked politely, like, Hey, please don't, um, you know, crow about this just yet. Uh, but now it's okay too. So, uh, here I am on the show getting, telling you how excited I am to play with this little toy. Yeah. It's so cute. I cannot oversee how adorable this little thing is. Yeah. I wish I could hold it. I can't cause I can't like <laughs> come over to your place and do anything. Yeah. Uh, but the pictures of it make it just seem like such a delight to hold in your hand. And the little crank is so it just seems like the kind of thing that you'd like to just spin for no reason. Yeah. But the yeah. idea that there's going to be gameplay attached with that little guy. Oh man, the I'm ideas, so pumped. The ideas I'm coming up with like are all mostly terrible, but like, <laughs> <laughs> just it's it's really quite incredible. Stephen, you played with one of these at a dev conference a while back, right? Yeah, when I went to the uh, Game Devs of Color conference, they had mm-hmm. the, the play date there, and uh, I forgot who developed it. I think it was the developers of um, Katamari Damacy. Yes, uh, the, um, so it's this, uh, like Crankin' Adventure or something like that uh, is, is going to be yeah. like, it's like the flagship <laughs> title for it, uh, made by yes. the, yeah, the, the uh, Katamari folks. Yeah, yeah, and it was cool. Like, uh, it was interesting. It, it felt, to me, it felt kind of gimmicky, but like, yeah. I guess that's the point, right? That this is totally thing. the point. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wait. <laughs> right. yeah, like, it's, sure. not, it's not supposed to be very expensive. It, it, what's its life supposed to be, like $100 or something? I guess 150 is, is the planned price. Oh, 150 Yeah, okay. which is still pretty cheap for a mobile, but yeah, it's... It's not yeah. an impulse buy, and I think that that might right. limit its its uh, impact in the market. If it was ninety nine dollars, yeah. I think it would really, really, you know, fly off virtual shelves for people who mm-hmm. just wanted to play with the toy. At one fifty, it's a little bit more of an investment, and so I think uh, um, uh, the library of games is going to have to sell it. Um, right. And their their model mm-hmm. is really interesting. So the idea is is that you don't really you you when you get it, it, it comes with season one of Playdate games, and that is. An unknown number of games, uh, or maybe there's a, a they're not quite settled yet, but you get one delivered to your console over Wi-Fi once a week, I think, for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and it just sort of surprises you with, with new small games. And then okay. in the future, you will then buy kind of a season pass for like season two or season three for a bunch of new games. Mm-hmm. And uh, Panic will is heavily curating what those games are. And so um, as you know, I have access to developer forums now. And so presumably there will be a process by which you can submit your game for, for potential inclusion in these things, mm-hmm. but none of those details are available yet. Um, and the part of the reason is, is because Panic is, you know, they're, they're a small company, but the, the people working on Playdate, there's five people on hardware, wow. software, services, the whole thing, it's five people. And oh, so, um, love that. and what's great about that um, is that um, you can, the, the communication, at least the, with the developer forum right now is really, really uh, hands-on. 
you can talk directly to these people if you're part of this program now. And that program is going to expand and be public soon enough. So it's um, um, uh, they're they're just keeping it small now so that they can manage it. But presumably right, they'll yeah. have to hire some community manager managing types to to run forums and, and discords and stuff like that. And uh, when they're ready, they will open it up to everybody, which I think is the point of this. Like you can buy one of these devices and just put your own games on it. Right. Right. It's like a mobile device where it's every device is there's no such thing as a dev kit. Right. Every device mm -hmm. works as a dev kit. And, and the device I have will once it's once the firmware is updated, will just be a retail unit eventually. Um, and so that's pretty exciting, like their philosophy, but their business model is still not quite clear. And so right. that's another reason why I'm, I'm doing a widget satchel spinoff, because I have no idea if I'll be able to sell the, anything I make. Right. right I, I might sure. just mm -hmm. I might just only be able to share it, um, like put it, you know, I'm able to put the package online for people to download and put on their own devices um, or mm -hmm. potentially be part of this uh, season system. Uh, which is not something that anybody should count on if you're making a game for this, because we don't really know what the, how their selection process works, um, or or even if the if uh, that involves any kind of financial compensation. Like no details are available yet, and so yeah. I, I'm sort of treating it as a, a little side mission in my game dev career. Um, and so uh, now is kind of a good time to, for a side mission, I suppose, uh, yeah. in in everybody's lives. So I'm 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 really enjoying it, but there's still a bunch of unknowns. But I'm not worried about that because I kind of have a lot of sort of um, faith and hope in this team uh, that, that's making it. Um, and if it doesn't work out great, then I'm not really going to be mad about it, you know? Yeah. Cool. Well, that's exciting. It is. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, we can just skip all of the Star Trek news. No, 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 can't. <laughs> I tried. <laughs> It's a short one. Um, so hey, wait, that's not the bullet I put in there. That's an extra bullet. It is one I put in there. Mark. <laughs> wait. There's even more Star Trek news. Ellen, you don't get well, mad about Star Trek. You're my Star Trek ally. I, I've got your back. Okay, good. What's up? Um, so <laughs> from where we're recording this episode, it was just two days ago, but um, it'll be old news by the time you hear this. Um, but too late. I want to talk about it anyway. Um, there's a new Star Trek show on the way. So CBS, which is the, so the holders of the Star Trek franchise, um, they have put out Star Trek Discovery, Star Trek Picard. There's a, an animated series called Lower Decks that is going to premiere this year. Um, there's a, 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 a spinoff series about Section 31. Um, there is, uh, so that's four shows. There's also going to be another animated show on Nickelodeon for kids, which I think is really, really cool because Star Trek needs to be mm. for kids, I think. And then this fifth series that they've just announced is called Star Trek Strange New Worlds. And it's a spinoff featuring Captain Pike. Uh, the number one character played by Rebecca Romaine and uh, this uh, uh, the Dis Discovery's version of Spock and the three of those characters on the USS Enterprise before Captain Kirk. So it's just a spinoff from Discovery because those characters appeared in, in season two of Discovery. And uh, but they were so well received by fans that everyone was like, oh, we would love to see um, more of these characters, because for those who watch Discovery, the main cast of that, they, they, they le leapt into the future and went away from the, the established setting of that show. And so we were never going to see those those guest characters again. But now they have their own spinoff. And the best thing about it, I think, is that it's going to be an episodic series. So unlike a lot of modern drama, which is heavily serialized, like everything's a soap mm. opera now. And that's fine, I guess. But one of the strengths of Star Trek, and I like serialized Star Trek. I like the new so shows and I love what DS9 did, for example. But one of the strengths of Star Trek is like it can introduce a lot of ideas. And the new shows mm. haven't really done that. They've introduced one or two big ideas, and uh, that has its place. But Star Trek is is at its best 
when it's like 40 minutes of one weird idea. And mm -hmm. uh, it looks like this new series is going to be that. And so that's cool because what it means is that Star Trek's doing both, which is not one or the other. So I'm really yeah. excited. It's going to be cool. But we're not going to oh. see it for two years, probably, because um, yeah. production okay. cannot start uh, for quite a while. Um, even things like pre-production staffing, you know, all that stuff it requires a lot of meetings and stuff that can't always all be done over Zoom. So things are mm -hmm. going to be things are moving slow for stuff like that. So um, yeah. patience. There's like so much Star Trek in the works, but so little is imminent. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it'll happen. It'll happen. It'll happen. There's it'll like happen. little things to get excited about in the in the meantime, but there's a lot of waiting to be done for everything, right? Like video games are being delayed. Like everything is uh, moving a little slower, and we have to find ways to sort of stay hype, right? Yeah. 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 Ellen, what are you hype about? I know. What am I hype about? Uh, so, hmm. What am I hype about? <laughs> you put in the notes a couple of things. You're well, these are, these are only things I'm like super hype about. They're just like oh, things okay. that I have found myself doing lately. So, uh, first, ah. like my, I have a tabletop gaming group that I am part of that meets every other week. I have so many I have multiple gaming groups. So I have a D&D group that meets every week. Um, used to meet in my basement. Now we meet on Discord. Uh, and then my board gaming group used to meet every other week, and now we're playing roughly every week, kind of, sort of, on Tabletopia. So we, uh, I like, I just like bringing up some of the new games that I play, because I like, I like talking about what people are playing and what new things that they're exploring, so I just yeah. figured I'd toss that in here. So the two things that I'm playing right now, um, aside from D&D, &D, we, we were playing a game called Tang Garden uh, on our board gaming group, and that was really cool. Like I, it, beautiful art. Um, and if you like kind of quirky themes and mechanics, I would definitely recommend checking this out because <laughs> it's a game where you build a garden mm -hmm. and you are scored points based on how much you're like what what your garden visitors see in their in the garden. It was really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so that was pretty cool. And then the other thing, I just don't have a lot of time to play like big games at the moment because of some various work things that are going on, but uh, I am getting some time to play this tiny little mobile game called Two, not Two Dots, it's Brain Dots. Mm -hmm. um, brain, dots. brain Dots. And it's got like this brain training theme, which I don't really pay any attention to because <laughs> it just doesn't... You know better. Really s yeah, because <laughs> I, I think that's I think that's fluff. Oh, this game looks really cute. It's so cute, yeah. So if you're trying to train your brain, read a book. Uh, but <laughs> if you like to play a cute little puzzle game, check out Brain Dots. And the, the premise is you've got two dots and you need to bring them together. And the way you bring them together is through drawing and physics. So you can draw on the screen and as soon as you raise your finger or your stylus, then gravity kicks in. So like you get to make ramps and weird loops and things like that to try to bring the dots together. It's it's really fun. Oh, wow, yeah. cool. Yeah. Okay. So that's got me that's got me hyped in in a small cute way. I'm downloading nice. it right now. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> I'll, pl it I'll, play kinda, it I'll play it later. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Let me know what, let me know what you think. Like, it's really interesting. They have like some mechanics around getting additional pens so you can draw like in different ways with different pens. Oh no. And I completely ignore it. <laughs> it's like it's so interesting. I've never I don't even play with that mechanic at all. It's all for yeah. me about like bringing those dots together. Mhm. Mm Yep. Stephen, what are you playing? Uh, well, we've been playing a little bit of Civilization. That's right. right? Mm -hmm. That's been fun. Mm -hmm. um, it's weird because I really never considered myself into 
four X games, but I'm playing Anno 1800 and Civilization now. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm a completely changed man. (laughs) 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 Um, Yeah, and so uh, that yeah, uh, I guess we're like sort of migrating a little way away from Star Trek Online. Yeah. So Uh, listeners have known we've been doing we've been checking in every week on our uh, Star Trek Online play, but um, this Saturday, Saturday we were like. Let's try something different. And uh, Martha, uh, you may remember her, uh, suggested uh, <laughs> Civilization because uh, she's a huge fan. And she's talked about that on the show a lot. And we're like, mm-hmm. OK, fantastic. So we all loaded up Civ 6 and been playing that. And that was, that, that's been fun. Yeah, I, I'm enjoying it a lot because I'm focusing basic only solely on like religion. Yeah, and, religion, and none of the rest of us are. conquest, <laughs> which is a weird uh, thing. I mean, we don't talk about religion very much in, in the show, but mm-hmm. like. Uh, I, I am a theist. I believe yeah. in God. So, You're a man of faith. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I, I was interested to see like how that translated to gameplay in in civilization. Mm-hmm. I think the previous civilizations, Martha was describing it. Previous civilizations had like religion as an aspect of it, but it wasn't like you couldn't win by it. Right. So in, there weren't a lot of mechanics game, it, it, with it, but now there are. Yeah, it helped. Yeah, it helps you, but like now, yeah, now you can win with it. And so like I, I was interested to explore that and so i've been doing that in civilization and it's pretty it's it's fascinating because it's like an additional layer that is like separate from most of the game which is Uh, that's what i really admire about it because the civilization does a really good job of matching theme with gameplay and Mm -hmm. and when it doesn't Mm -hmm. you really notice it and so that's how good it is because it's so effortless it seems so effortless that the little places where it seems kind of silly or unusual are really are extremely noticeable where other games they would just be whatever um, mm-hmm. And the religion aspect is fantastic because we're all playing on a team because we all want to be friends. And yeah. um, so <laughs> um, but the religion element is something where you can have competing religions, even if you're on the same team. And uh, because none of us want to get in Stephen's way, because we know how <laughs> nobody else is founding a religion. And so <laughs> yeah. uh, and so what ends up happening is that Stephen will roll up to your territory um, just because, you know, he's your he's your neighbor and we're on the same team. And then all of a sudden uh, <laughs> I look at the, the stats as like the city view and it's like your city will be converted to Stephenism like in three turns. And I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty great, at least from my perspective. <laughs> and then you get tons of benefits from it. And then we get the, the light of the Stephen and which is also great. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's, it's, it's. But what's great about it is that it's like um, the, the mechanics exist in the background, kind of that there. It's a whole separate system. And part of that might be because it's a it's a new system to civilization. So they might have just wanted to not have it interact as much with other mechanics to not rock the boat. Um, so yeah. m- maybe that's the reason. But it has the effect of being very much like w- real world religion, where your alliances, your political alliances, your military alliances, your sort of social alliances are sort of separate from your religious alliances which feels sort of um, kind of beside the point, but always there, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, which yeah. I find really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, I'm enjoying it a lot. Mm-hmm. I would like to, maybe in the show notes, Stephen, you can list out some of the tenets of Stephenism. <laughs> um, I'm curious. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they're all like mechanical benefits. In the- <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't want to do that. <laughs> if you worship Stephen, you get plus one to something, right? Like that's the <laughs> I mean, forget everlasting life. Like you want to, s- <laughs> yeah. Specific benefits in the here and now of your game, right? 
That's also yeah. what's nice about it, it. You know, as someone who is not a theist, like it, seeing the the benefits of religion being expressed as like cultural and societal uh, uh, alterations. To me, that's what religion is. Religion is culture, right? And, yeah. and it has mm-hmm. a, a effects on on culture and art and and politics. And so, and civilization is it doesn't um, and it it recognizes that and treats that as a real effect. And that's kind of neat. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah. Like so, Ellen, you're not playing with us because you are you're busy on the weekend. So you just hang out and watch. Uh, you watch Steven's yeah, stream, least, right? For, for the next couple of weeks, we're starting something really big at work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am kind of finishing up some other things, trying to wrap some things up. So I don't have a lot of time to play. But I did. Uh, I did. I was able to watch Stephen Stephen's stream. Um, so I was able to kind of cheer on the march of Stephenism across the digital world. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And that was pretty cool. So, yeah, I, I don't really watch a lot of streams. I think it's because I, I really like it's I need to have a strong personal connection with the person that I'm watching. Mm-hmm. But I do really like watching like friends and family play games. So that was that was that was a cool way to get, you know, stay involved, even if I wasn't going to play the game. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, that's cool. I am yeah, looking forward. To, I mean, I, I'm, I'm missing Star Trek online. It's like because we get together once a week to, to play these games like it is precious time. And so yeah, yeah. I want to play a bunch of things, but we all have other things in our lives. So we can't have three or four gaming sessions a week. Um, right. You know, we can't mm-hmm. all have Ellen's schedule. And so <laughs> <laughs> um, at least not with each other. And so uh, I'm like, oh, but I want to play Civ again. But like, oh, I'm going to the longer we go without getting back to Star Trek online, the less likely we're going to go back at all. Um, yeah. Which is like, but that's just the way of the world. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. Can't play everything. Yeah. I've started playing XCOM uh, this week. And oh. and there's and like there's nothing else in my life like, it's, it's like <laughs> I I need to stop playing that game because it it, eat, it can eat up a whole day. Um, mm. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. I'll do the, I'll do like one mission and I'll, it'll take forever. It'll take like seemingly hours, and at the end it'll give you the after action report and be like, this took nine turns, and I'm like, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> hey, hey, but I'm That's really how civilization works too. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, I don't play a lot of tactics games, but I, I really, really love the genre. And I feel like I've just missed out on all the big tactics games um, for other reasons, like aesthetically or, or I just didn't see them come out. But I played Mario and Rabbids a, a, a while when that came out and I, because I love Mario and, uh, and I can tolerate the Rabbids. And, <laughs> and I love that game. And I, it really is, it, had, it has all the tactics conventions, right? It's just it's like it's, um, it's my first tactics game, right? And I was like, oh, I should really be playing way more of these. It's, it's totally up my alley. This is exactly the genre mm-hmm. for me. Um, but I'm like, but I don't, I, I don't, didn't seem to, don't really love any of the, anything else about the other famous tactics games. But I got XCOM, uh, I think on PlayStation Plus, so I didn't have to pay for it. Um, mm-hmm. And so I was like, okay, I'll give this a go. And yeah, I really, really like it, just as expected. So it, I don't know what took yeah. me so long. Um, I don't know anyone who's, who's played XCOM who hasn't really fallen forward hard. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's super easy to get into it. It's, um, even all of its pain points are kind of like uh, just like uh, whatever they roll off your back. Like it, um, it sucks you in really, really quickly. Um, and you yeah. can, you fall in love with your your squad, and they're all disposable. Like if they die, they do not come back. You do have an infinite supply of new people to put in your squad, but like yeah. you you get really attached to the characters you make in the game. Like they right. get randomized names and appearances, but they feel like real people. <laughs> It's like it's very effective. Like it's all it's all an illusion, but it's very it's all extra textual. It's all part not part of the uh, mechanics, but it really, really is a, a good effort um, to make you feel like they're you know you really 
it it makes you uh, less risky. Like you don't want to like risk a, a character, and it's way you're way more susceptible to save scumming because you if like oh, if you yeah. if you get a bad roll, right? If if like suddenly one of your characters gets because man, I'm playing on easy, and there are still like one hit kills. Like my oh, wow. my characters can go down if I make one mistake. It's really really oh. intense. Yeah. Um, but you know, it might be just cause I haven't played a lot of these games, even though I, 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 I it seems to be the format for me, so I might not be good at it yet, <laughs> but like, <laughs> I'll, I'll like lose my, my favorite character and I'm like, all right, that's it. I'm going back to an auto save from two hours ago. <laughs> like I'm going to do all of that because I, 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 cause the last 30 seconds were, were didn't go great for me. Mm-hmm. That is a, that is dedicated leadership, Mark. <laughs> Oh, I, I smell w- a transition. I wouldn't go that far, but that we could. But we can move on to the topic. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll always go for the awkward, the most awkward transitions possible. <laughs> That's a guarantee. Yeah, that's <laughs> a feature of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, really not a great. There's really not. A, I don't think there's a great segue to be found from what are we playing now to this next topic. But one of the things we wanted to discuss today was leadership uh, in games. So I gave everyone a bit of homework, which I'm sure you guys were super happy about. Yeah, was like, yeah, yeah, yeah I, loved it. I love homework. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But the the kind of the context I want to set or the the boundaries I want to set for this discussion is, you know, what what is what does it mean to be a leader in games? Whether you're whether you're looking at a leader as an individual person or as an organization or company, um, and what are kind of the different flavors and the the spectrum of leadership? And I was hoping we could start with some examples before we start digging in, you know, looking into those topics um, and qualities more broadly. Mm-hmm. So I the homework I gave to you was to come up with a couple ideas of people or organizations who you'd consider to be leaders in games. And uh, that led to some really interesting pre, pre-recording conversation about what does it mean to be a leader, but that's really what we want to talk about today. So I asked you all to come up with some examples, and then we're going to share them really quick. So uh, I'll start with mine, but um, what we want to just share is, like, who, what did this person or organization do? Who are they? And why do you think of that as a good example of leadership? So um, I have a couple I wanted to call out Jane McGonagall. So she is a she is a PhD who works in the Games for Change space. Mm-hmm. Um, she's written a couple books. She's done a TED Talk that was really popular. It's like a TED Talk that she did back in 2012, but it's still like referenced really frequently now. Um, and the books that she wrote were Reality is Broken and Super Better. And Super Better talks about a game that she was involved in that helps people heal faster or it helps you know um and it's like it's focusing on the psychological aspect of healing it's really it's a really cool story and i think um i chose her as an example of game leadership because i think she does a great job of getting in front of an audience and telling a story about what games can do that's not really part of the main like the mainstream depiction of what games are yeah and i think that she's been pretty she's been a pretty powerful voice in um like the serious games the development of the serious games industry over the past 10 years or so mm-hmm. um it's really it's really picking up it's really exploding and i think that in in large i think in large part that's because she does a good job of explaining how games can 
how games change us for the better in a way that anyone can understand. Yeah. So Jane McGonagall is my first one. Um, and then Alexei Pajitnov, who was the developer of Tetris is one of my other ones. And there was a, the, nice. there's a, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. And I, I picked him partly because it, his, I think his story is actually like way different than, than Jane McGonagall's. Um, obviously like he was developing Tetris decades ago. Um, like right. Tetris was released like around the same time I was born. <laughs> so <laughs> it's definitely a different, different period of time. Uh, but he's just a guy who was making a thing that he really believed in and then was able to, he just shared it with people and people got excited about it. And now it's, you know, one of the, one of the most influential games of all time. Yeah. Um, he's been given awards from different organizations for like pioneering the casual games market. It's really, it's really an interesting story um, and a totally different path into leadership if you want to read more about it, there's a really cool graphic novel called The Games We Play. And it it tells that story of how Tetris was created and how it came to the world uh, in a graphic novel format, which I think is a great way yeah. of reading about like autobiographical things. I, I should find more of like that format of um, of nonfiction. Graphic novel nonfiction is pretty cool. Yeah, I, I have that book. I have not finished it yet, but I got yeah. like, Three fourths of the way done. It was very good. I just I uh, tend to not finish books. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> fine. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was great. It was it was a good read. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, his story is really interesting because he you know he developed the game in Soviet Russia, working mm-hmm. for a, a an arm of of state government, and so he never had any uh, under any expect expectation of owning his work, and then mm-hmm. and how just the story of him like the how he handled that situation and how it moved on to um eventually becoming a commercial product and then eventually uh the Tetris company and all of that like his his sort of like um adapting to how the 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 the, the situations of the real world sort of in mm-hmm. kind of a leader by example i think yeah. uh and like it really interesting yeah yeah for sure and then uh the third example i had I wrote on four, but that exceeds the, the parameters of the homework. Um, <laughs> the third example will be Ryan Sumo, who we interviewed. Um, well, for us, it was last night. For listeners, it was last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, who is doing amazing work in the Philippines. And one of the things he talked about on the interview was how he just started up an IGDA chapter because there wasn't one. Yeah. And he felt there needed to be. So he did it. Yeah. Yeah. Very impressive. <laughs> yeah, like that's leadership, right? Mm-hmm. That shows that like leadership is not always about big things, right? Yeah, it's about it's about big actions, right? And like, and that can be done in, in small ways or or you know, uh, in uh, at a local scale, um, mm-hmm. right? It doesn't, you know, and that's why it's hard to come up with these these names because the people we know are people who are probably known by many, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so it's uh, we can reach for. Uh, smaller examples um, to to sort of inspire people, let them know that like, yeah, you don't have to, um, you don't have to be a big shot to be a leader, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, can we skip my turn? No. <laughs> Dang it. Uh, I had a hard time. With, well, like Mark was saying, I had a hard time with this because, like, uh, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's because like I'm not I'm not regularly thinking about like who's the leader in our industry. Mm-hmm. Um. Or what? I don't know. Uh, like, I guess the name I came up with 
which I mean, if you've listened to the show for it, it, it wouldn't be that surprising. Is Mash Hero Sakurai who uh, developed Smash uh, <laughs> and Kirby games? So like, <laughs> maybe he's more of a personal hero than right. <laughs> but I, like, I think Steven, I, I think Steven's given up on Stevenism and is going to be uh, converting to <laughs> Sakuraism. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but like I, what I what I really admire about him is that like he, the way he develops games, like he builds games for, he builds games so that like they're easy to get into, um, but there there's a lot that you can master within them. Mm-hmm. So yeah. like like all of his games that he's like uh, led have, have really been have been about that. And so I like basically most of his games because of that. I don't know. It feels like yeah. there's a lot of ways you can. Um, continue with the game and learn about it and understand it more uh, due to how he develops the games. And so like um, his, his leadership has led to a lot of those products that I enjoy. So, yeah. Yeah. So he's like, like a, he's a leader in um, like as, a, as an example in the industry, independent yeah. of his leadership of, um, of his company. Right. Yeah. Which is like a yeah. separate kind of thing. Like he's famously a hands-on leader, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Like a lot of executive producers will, they have to step back. They can't be part of the day to day work because that's that that can diminish your value as a leader. But he's right. sort of been able to do both. Um, like he's in there tweaking every character in Smash, and it seems like the people who work for him like worship him. It's he's not seen as a micromanager. Um, I mean, who's to say what goes on behind closed doors? But he seems right. to run that company as a way of like everyone is servicing his vision in a way that normally can spell a lot of trouble. But there hasn't been any indication that that's the case with him. Well, one thing that's fascinating about Sakurai specifically is that like he's a he's actually a contractor. He has his own company. Uh, I can't remember. What the, I think it's just Sora Limited. Yeah, right, and right. Like, he, he doesn't that, work for Nintendo. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't work for Nintendo. But like, yeah, he doesn't really. I don't think he works for most of like the people who make the games that he's done outside of stuff. I think he just mm-hmm. contracts and like he he is contracted at to be a manager of a team. Oh, so his mm-hmm. company doesn't have employees. It's just his. Uh, his I think wife. it's. I think it's just him and his wife. Yeah, um, yeah. Who does all the uh, UI in Smash, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, like, it's it's actually really fascinating that like he's still being asked to work on Smash, even though he's not specifically an employee in Nintendo, mm-hmm. due to how important his influence has been in those games. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So I don't. I, I find that to be really fascinating, and I found that to be really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, uh, oh, who put Reggie on my list? <laughs> that was Mark. I donated Reggie to you. <laughs> Reggie is also <laughs> awesome. Mm-hmm. Reggie Fizume, uh, who recently retired from Nintendo um, as the CEO of Nintendo of America. But like his his I mean uh, his leadership has been important because like he's been so influential in. Uh, providing, I mean, in in just like providing, like, the, how do I describe it? He's like explained the message of Nintendo to American audiences in such a way that like we could cheer for Nintendo more. Yeah, and that's yeah. that's really cool. Well, also leading the industry in that philosophy of of like play is important, right? Yeah, that, yeah. Um, yeah. As games became more cinematic. I think uh, he was making sure that like his influence, uh, uh, which is really on behalf of Nintendo, right? Like mm-hmm. um, the thing about Nintendo of America is as much power as they have in Nintendo, they're still a, a subsidiary, right? But mm-hmm. but yeah. Reggie was really responsible for like spearheading the marketing 
of the Wii and the DS and like right. the and and uh, sort of establishing Nintendo's uh presence worldwide uh, and uh, you know the idea of like games for everyone like games for kids can be played by adults games for, you know games for adults don't have to be mature like you know mm-hmm. in, in, in a rated M in that sense and like making yeah. sure that that was so that games didn't um so you have people who are like saying like I love Animal Crossing and I love Doom like I think Reggie is a lot is 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 if we didn't have Reggie, I think that would be more of a of a niche additive, right? Yeah. Hmm. Very true. Mm-hmm. Also, I mean, he's he's a black dude who's the CEO of a company. <laughs> and yeah. that's great for me. I like that a lot. <laughs> um, but like, I had a hard time coming up with a list of of people in this, and, and I'm not exactly sure why. I think, um, I think maybe it's because like, I mean, maybe part of it is like I'm I'm part of the industry, um. And so, like, the people I know who maybe I consider leaders, I don't consider leaders just because, like, I'm so friendly with them. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, but, like, but maybe also, like, uh, I'm trying, I guess, to aspire to be somewhat of a leader myself. So, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't I don't necessarily have a guide so much as, like, um, a, mm-hmm. a an idea of, like, what I want to be in terms of a leader. And so, I'll, like pick and choose personalities and information from other people and like create what the, 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 the ideal leader I would like to be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And so maybe, maybe, maybe instead of like, instead of thinking of people as leaders, I think of like the the personality traits and qualities that some, that some developers and such have in the industry. And I'll like, and I, and I think of them in that way instead of specifically a leader. Um, yeah. Yeah. You think about their accomplishments and their, their, their way of being rather than like their status as leader, capital L. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, let's come back to that. I want to hear Mark's picks. Yeah. So I was, we were talking a little bit about uh, before the show, like what is our definition here? And I think we've pretty, we've made it pretty clear that it's a pretty wide definition. Right. So I was thinking like, you know, leaders in terms of like influencers, but I think it's getting more specific to, um, you know, uh, uh, folks who lead folks Um, thinking about, uh, you know, um, people like Tim Schaefer, who um, serves as sort of like a public figure. So like like Reggie or Sakurai to an extent, like someone Mm -hmm. who who runs a team and sets an example, um, but also is a public figure who can influence uh, uh, the industry and influence culture. And I think yeah. uh, he's done a pretty good job of 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 talking about how like Double Fine is, is uh, you know, the sort of like um, high level indie. Right. And uh, they recently got bought by Microsoft. And so now he's, uh, you know, an employee of Microsoft. Um, mm-hmm. And so um, and the fact that nobody is uh, no that gamers are not storming the gates of Double Fine with pitchforks and, and, and torches is a testament to how much people uh, believe in him. Right. Yeah. And so um, I, I think he's a pretty good example. And, uh, you know, everyone wants to work at Double Fine. And a lot of that is because of the, the sort of the culture there that he has has inspired. And uh, there's a lots of documentation about it, right? Like uh, uh, Double Fine Adventure, the the uh, the documentary about Broken Age. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's it's not really a mystery to a lot of people. And I think that's a really good example. But it also it also really reveals how many leaders like him are unknown to anyone, to those who are not led by them. And so, mm-hmm. and so Stephen, you're right. Like it, it becomes very difficult to think of great examples without going towards obvious ones that just by their inclusion exclude so many others. 
right? Yeah. So yeah. Uh, so he seemed like a good example of something like that. Someone else that is sort of leads in a sort of a different way um, uh, is uh, Tim Sweeney of Epic, um, who, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, you know, is sort of an advocate, right? An ideological advocate. Um, so a couple of years ago, when Microsoft was putting out Windows 8 in the Windows Store, he went on a tear about uh, how, how that was a closed system. And I, you know, I wasn't totally on board with his uh, uh, criticisms then, but he runs Epic Games, which is a huge company, and he is not mm -hmm. afraid to go to the press and say something that he that people won't agree with him with. Like, I think that mm -hmm. is leadership in a sense of like having of just believing in what he believes in. And yeah. I think that's really interesting. And, and more recently, um, he has talked a lot about uh, with the Epic's game store being under constant fire from gamers for like it's, you know, unfair exclusivity and whatever, whatever. Like he's, you know, his company, um, you know, makes Unreal Engine and Fortnite, which are two, you know, behemoths of in the industry. And Fortnite makes gobs of gods of money you know, with a, a business <laughs> model that I'm not super excited about. Um, listeners to the show will know. Um, but he's taken all that money and he's basically given it away to developers. And uh, the um, uh, Epic has awarded grants to competing game engines. Um, <laughs> like, you know, th there's it's hard to see uh, evil intent in a lot of the things that Epic does. Like, if you know a little bit about how this industry works, like to, to see that someone who is basically cornered the market on on battle royale games and is uh and is really uh, taking it to steam in the uh, pc uh, uh store market um just seeing all the other things they do just awarding money to people uh, like just uh, with no strings attached um to say that uh you know um uh, royalties on unreal engine are no longer uh going to be collected um for mm -hmm. you know for certain people like that's news that was that broke recently um, and at the same time, the company just announced uh, uh, Unreal Engine 5, working uh, closely with Sony on this incredible demo that everybody's talking about. Uh, mm -hmm. But also Tim Sweeney is now going and talking about how he loves working with Microsoft. Like it's it's he's uh, I think it's easy to have uh, reactions to certain things he's done. But um, and I've had positive and negative, but he's um, done a lot. And I think that's leadership, right, is to not mm. is to sort of keep moving forward and changing the way you do things based on the the uh, reality on the ground and um, and uh, doing all of that has earned my admiration, despite the fact that uh, that Fortnite is responsible for all of it you know, or for a lot of it. Anyway. <laughs> like, so that's uh, that's something that's that's an achievement, I think. Mm -hmm. um, it's funny because like I'm not really a fan of his, but when I the more I think about the, what he's done, the more I really admire um, the, the steps he's taken, uh, um, um, you know, throughout the industry. Um, just because yeah. he's something and, and that's the that's the model I I sort of aspire to is someone who's who has strong opinions and isn't afraid to 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 put them into effect. You know, mm. um, the, my last example is uh, Adrielle Wallach. Uh, she is an independent game developer uh, who um, is a community leader and ha started up Train Jam, um, which mm, is yeah. something <laughs> I didn't get to go on this year. And I'm very disappointed. Okay. Um, yeah. So uh, which is uh, a sort of uh, sad. Um, but um, she, uh, the story is really fantastic. She uh, just, she wrote an Amtrak one time and just thought, hey, wouldn't it be cool to have a, a jam on the train that starts when the, the train starts and ends when the, when the train reaches the destination? Just a fun little idea. And then she turned that into this institution um, that is, that gets, um, you know, sponsorships and, uh, and, and supports um, uh, marginalized developers uh, by offering uh, 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 sort of scholarships. Uh, to ride the train offer uh, the the train jam every year has um, a mentorship sessions with uh, with game developers who are on the train 
and industry leaders. Um, just what she has done is, um, and it's one of those things that unless you're really in the indie game dev community, you probably have not heard of her. Um, but like she did this amazing thing starting with starting from nothing. It's absolutely Mm -hmm. incredible. And uh, just hearing about like, I had to get my refund for train jam this year and just hearing about how like she had to, she had to get sponsors to front the money to provide refunds. Because she wasn't going to get her refund of the, you know, multiple hundred thousand dollars it takes to rent an entire train. She wasn't going to get her refund right away. But she put in the extra work to raise money from the companies who who were helping to sponsor the train jam so she could deliver refunds as soon as possible. Because a lot of the people who go on train jam, even those who don't get the scholarships, you know, who pay the price, like a lot of them are uh, indie devs with not a lot of money. And she knows Mm -hmm. that. And she like it didn't occur to her to do it any other way. And so. I have tons of admiration for her and for people like her who, you know, start these start these things and and just like keep that incredible indie spirit uh, in a way that helps people. Right. Because there's like leadership in service of a product of an idea. And then there's just leadership in direct service of others. And I think that's the kind of leader she is. And I'm I'm Mm -hmm. I'm very, very uh, um, uh, an admirer of that. I really like the way that you just. You just laid that out because one mm-hmm. of the one of the things I wanted to go to next was, you know, what are the qualities of a leader? And the, mm-hmm. there was kind of this dichotomy kind of in my mind that was building of leadership where there's a person making other people do a thing to get a result. Yeah. Um, and then there's leadership where there's a person creating something, whether that's a movement or a conversation or an organization or an event or a product that shows people where they could go yeah. you know there's a book that i haven't read (laughs) so it's probably (laughs) not something i should mention but it's on my list it's called leaders eat last Mm -hmm. and it's kind of about the idea of servant leadership um and i think that's kind of related to uh the story of adriel you were just saying Mm -hmm. mark um where she didn't she didn't like take someone say you're gonna you're gonna make games on a train go (laughs) she said hey wouldn't it be cool if and i'm gonna try to make it happen so that others can enjoy it um, and I think part, maybe part of the reason why you are, uh, kind of drawn to Tim Sweeney's mm-hmm. action as a leader is because he's kind of maybe doing some of that too. I mean, in, in, in engaging with competitors or creating, you know, giving grants to alternate engines and stuff like that, mm-hmm. he's not like he and Epic aren't just saying, hey, we're making this product and you should buy it. It's they're elevate, trying to elevate the industry overall. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. Getting, and I think getting of, power and then doing something with it, right? Right, getting power and then doing something to share it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, I think that's, what I think of leadership, that's what I think of. I don't think of leadership as like the general in front of the army. Um, I think of leadership as the people who show up and try to empower others. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, I think that's I think that's important. I think that's a, an important quality, really, to just having a leader, just because like that's what you need to build more leaders and build more community. Mm-hmm. Is like somebody who can empower others to feel like they can be a leader themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, what um, if you're going to be specific? Like, what qualities do leaders in games have? What are what are some of the things? that you described and some of the people that you brought up, but like, if you were to be specific about qualities that those people have, how would you describe those qualities? Uh, that's a good question. 
Yeah. Um, I think it's it's tricky because, um, I mean, we sort of hit on a couple of them as we talked about our examples. But I think the um, it's it's being able to recognize the balance between serving the vision and then adapting the vision, right? Mm. If, if you're leading people and you have an idea of what you want to do, and, and I'm speaking as generally as possible because this can apply to a game you're making as a team leader or or a project you're leading as a community manager or something. But you have like, this is what I want it to do. And then, so leadership is about like inspiring others uh, and doing the work to make that thing happen. But also, if, especially if you're working with a lot of other people and depending on how you are compensating them uh, to, to uh, literally, right? Like what, uh, like they want to, they'll be there to inspire you to adjust that vision, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that comes down at a pretty simple level, like running, running a, a team that's making a game. Like you have this specific notion of how you want it to work. But, uh, you know, how do you manage others who want to, who have a different idea? Um, and how do you adapt that idea? And do you, ser- do you both serve a larger notion that then each of your implementations can be adapted to, to do? And I think a good leader knows the balance between that, knowing when mm-hmm. to say like, oh, I want to make everybody happy. So I'll just, we'll all just do everybody's ideas. But then that, that kind of can hurt uh, uh, the ultimate goal. Um, or, uh, uh, you know, and so you want to say, Sometimes like this is what it is and I need to sell it to my team, right? Um, or I need to convince them that even if they don't like it, it's o- it, that they will be okay with, with it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then sometimes being able to say like, oh, um, I need to make a change because I can't sell this, right? And so that can be giving up a little bit of your vision rather than just, than just saying, oh, that's a great idea. I'll do it, right? A lot of people think that like, you know, if, if, if I, if the, if I impress the boss, they'll come up, they'll do my idea. But sometimes mm-hmm. it, the, the boss needs to say, oh, you know what? If, if I, if I don't uh, uh, adapt, then I will, then there'll be long-term consequences. So I will uh, give up on something I believe in to an extent in order to service the larger vision. So like, yeah. and that's not something you can like calculate it. And it's not something you can really do a case by case. You have to find you have to kind of have a set of your own rules for when you do that and how, and then make sure everybody knows what those rules are, right? Or how you make those decisions. Um, but also you do need to be flexible because uh, doing it one way or the other, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So just like a lot of like headspace, right? Like you need to, you need to be always monitoring what's happening. It's a good analogy and kind of a visualization of leadership that I like where it's like, you've got a bunch of people and you're trying to work your way through really dense forest mm-hmm. and you're trying to get to a place that's far away that you can see if you're up high, but to clear, you know, to clear your way or find your way through the forest, you have to have people down below the tree line to you know move things along. And so the leader is the person who's up top saying, okay, we're headed in the right direction. Um, keep doing what you're doing or mm, we're not headed in the right direction. We need to adjust. But isn't, you know, isn't going down to the forest floor saying you're not holding your axe the right way? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, and I think that it's kind of an interesting image that summarizes what you were saying, Mark. Like, I think a, a good leader in games needs to have a strong sense of creative vision. Mm-hmm. Um, probably not everybody. I'm sure there are leaders in games who maybe we didn't mention who are not necessarily on the creative side. But also good, you know, strong communication skills to help communicate that vision in a way to others that gets them excited to be involved in it. Yeah, yeah. 
I it think does, you hinted at it a little bit too, Ellen, that like you, you need to be able to trust, you know, a good leader needs to be able to trust their uh, people under them. I don't know how, that's not a good way to describe it. Underlings. People on the ground. Yeah. Yeah, people on the ground. You need to be able to trust the people you've asked to be part of your team yeah. or are mm-hmm. part of your team to do the job that they were asked to do. Because mm-hmm. um, like if you micromanage them, then you're not going to be able to see everything from higher up and be able mm-hmm. to steer the ship, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and I, so a, I think I think that's important. Yeah. Well, and as a result, if like if you as a leader are micromanaging people, that that erodes their trust in your vision because yeah. yeah, you know if they're if they're telling you how to hold, you know, a stylus, then the, you're not looking ahead at the market or the larger needs of the the game that your story you know the story that your game is trying to tell or whatever you're involved in. Right. So right. it limits what you're balance. able to do because you're spending time doing something else, right? Exactly. It's like yeah. a, on a real yeah. practical level. Uh, right. So Mark, I think that the balance you described is really, really key. Mm-hmm. And Stephen, your example of Sakurai is, I, I, I keep thinking back to like how he really is hands-on. Like he really does, he holds the ax. So like that is an interesting exception almost, but maybe. Well, the, I, maybe so the, he used to in the past, yeah. I think he's, he's, well, yeah, actually, it's kind of interesting because like the way that Smash has progressed, mm-hmm. because like now uh, Smash Ultimate and Smash Four were developed in partnership with uh, uh, Namco Bandai, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so uh, they there's like a team that he has. Of, I think it's grown. It used to be like I think when uh, when they started on Smash Four, it was like four people. Now it's like eight people or ten people mm-hmm. that like are specifically focused on balance, and they will. Uh, analyze all of the data that they get from various things and then make or design tweaks for the, the characters that they want to change. And then they'll bring that to Sakurai and he just approves them. Whereas like with Brawl and Melee, I think he like was the person who was making all of the, the balance changes before the game came out. Oh, okay. Uh, so it's an evolution so, like, he, a little bit. Interesting. Yeah. So he's okay. like adapted with the times. And so like he is really leading a team yeah, that does the changes now? Well, I was thinking of it in terms of like uh, smaller projects where mm-hmm. a, a, um, like a leader also has to get their hands dirty because there yeah. is work to do, right? Very true. Like the the idea of a high level leader, like who is above above the tree line, like that is something a leader has to do regardless of the scale of a project or a team. Yeah, but at the yeah. at a lower scale, the a leader is also really has to do some of the work, and I think the key mm-hmm. might be to that the leader has to carve out their own. Uh, a area of work rather than yeah. doing something that other people are doing, like directly overseeing, mm-hmm. because then you can get into micromanaging. But you can still have right. a leader like Sakurai in the past would actually go in and tweak those numbers because it was his job to, right? Mm-hmm. It wasn't his yeah, job yeah. to overrule anybody's things. So it can be kind of tricky because I think a lot of people come into leadership um, from another field. And, and so the question of giving that up is something you have to consider, right? Mm-hmm. And that's hard for so many people, right? It's hard yeah. for everybody. Yep. So last question I have on this topic is, you know, thinking, let's put ourselves in the visionary roles for a second and thinking about, you know, games in the near future. What kind of things do we need leaders in games to be doing for the community? That's a good question, too. Uh, I think, like, we just, we need leaders to keep leading and making games that they want to make mm-hmm. um and make and, and yeah make the games that they want to make because like it'll lead to 
a larger diversity of kinds of games we can make. Yeah. Um, cause like, I think I, I deal like what I would love is if we had, um, more people who were, in, who did not feel limited by the market to create what games they want to make, like, mm-hmm. or, or alternatively the market to better embrace different types of games. Yeah. Um, because then, like, we could just have a bunch of new games that, like, we haven't seen before. And that, like, would be very exciting, at least for me. <laughs> um, and so um, that that's something I would like. So I would like more people. I would like more leaders to try to carve out their own space in games. Yeah. Break I, new ground. I agree with that. Yeah. I, th- I think um, it's uh, th- they need to have a, um, they need to have a, be- a belief, right? They need to have their yeah. own, like you said, the games they want to make. Um, mm-hmm. And so they need to have a direction that they can they can yeah sell to a team, sell to a publisher, sell to the public. Um, because yeah, we go. It's the only way we get that diversity because there's way too many um, uh, you know great leaders who uh, deliver product, but that's that's independent of their leadership in games, right? To move yeah. the industry forward, to move the field forward, to move the, the artistic um, elements forward, um, they need to sort of lead in a different way, like not just you know, about, you know, delivering the the best, highest resolution Call of Duty ever. Um, mm-hmm. Like that, that's a great leader, but that's not what we're talking about, right? We want, we want something right. better than that. Um, yeah. You know, which isn't to say there isn't innovation in those games, but um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing I would say that is important for leadership is to set examples that will then inspire new leaders and to, but to directly lift up uh, new voices. Right. Yeah. Um, to find people on your team um, or people outside your team who will lead the next thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Or to step aside in favor of somebody else because they have a great idea that you think they could they would be better. They could do a better job executing than you. And so you put a yeah. little bit of your resources into getting them uh, somewhere where they need to be, where they can be a leader. Um, yeah. And that's, you know, that's a pretty generic. I don't have any prescriptions for making that work. Uh, but that mm-hmm. can happen within a company, within an industry, within a, a, a community um, in, in lots of different ways. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that that makes sense. And I think the only thing I'd add to that is, like, what do we need game leaders to do and have in the future is just be courageous, mm-hmm. right? I mean, try to make good games. And if something that you make isn't good, have the courage to keep going, learn from it, and try again. And, you know, try to tell your story because as Stephen was saying, like one of the ways that we push the boundaries of the industry and the art is by creating space for new types of games and creating space for people who haven't been represented, you know, in the industry in the past to come in there and and add their voices to it. So that takes courage and every, you know, you can find that no matter who you are. You can be a leader in the Nice Games Club community if you fill out the feedback form. Ah! Whoa! <laughs> uh, feedback is important, and we, we 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 love iterating off of that feedback, and you know because like we want to understand what our listeners want from the show, um, and so if you uh, specifically like one thing that we have in our feedback form right now is like how frequently do you want to hear roundtables like this one? Um, because like. If, if you're looking for more of this kind of content, we'd like to provide that for you. So let us know. Uh, you can do that at nicegames.club slash feedback. What was that URL, Stephen? Nicegames.club 
slash feedback. I don't know if I got that. Can you give me it to me just one more time so I, I know <laughs> I've got it? Nicegames.club slash feedback. Okay, I think I'll remember. <laughs> okay. <laughs> As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Uh, I don't have a good transition to the next topic. Okay. That's Price. perfect transition right, right. there. <laughs> Pricing. Well, this costs money to make. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. So wait, 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 Stephen. You're telling me things cost money. Y yes. Which is why we have to choose pricing for stuff. Y yes. Yes. It it all comes full circle. <laughs> so like, but you guys how are both do you doing excellent work right now? I have to say. <laughs> Thank you, thank you, Mark. <laughs> okay. 177 episodes, this is what we've got. Uh, we've gotten really good at it. Um, yes, so, yeah, making games is expensive. Mm -hmm. um, but games are also expensive. So, like, you have to, like, balance that. I, I would contend that games are... Buying games is not expensive. Well, I don't know. Arguably, they're, they're a lot cheaper than they have been in the past, for sure. Yeah. But, like... I think it is still expensive, depending on like what games you're trying to buy. Like mm -hmm. PC games, arguably are cheap, but you still need a decent PC in order to run them. And then consoles, you know, are five hundred bucks a pop, three hundred bucks if you got a Switch, whatever. Yeah. Uh, so it's still it's still an investment. Right. Right. It is. It it's a little. It's bit. real money. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. but they have they're cheaper than they ever been in the past, and that's mm -hmm. something I want to talk about too. Is that like pricing has changed and evolved in a way that is. Uh, it's moving quickly. Mm -hmm. Like it's helpful to like think about that now and and analyze like where you should progress, or how you should price your game uh, on whatever market you're trying to sell it in. Yeah, and it's also different per region too. It's not just like the U.S. has its own like pricing system, mm -hmm. but like uh, trying to sell your game in Europe versus trying to sell your game in Japan versus trying to sell your game in uh, the Philippines or wherever. It it's a different. It's all different. So, like, yeah. that's something that I'm not going to get into because I don't know specifics. I know a little <laughs> bit about that. Um, okay. I, I can speak to that, which is uh, when yeah. you... Uh, um, and a lot of people who have published on Steam uh, have seen this, where um, um, Valve has a tool for setting prices in all the regions in which it sells. And uh, uh, yeah. Steam is a worldwide platform uh, with no sort of region locking, uh, by default, that is. And so um, when you set a price, it, um, it actually recommends, based on that price, what you should sell in other regions. And a lot of developers ah. do that and think it's a simple exchange rate. 
but it's actually not. Um, it actually takes into account the markets of those regions. And it says like, oh, you're selling this game for $15. You should sell it for this many rubles or whatever. And you're like, okay, great. That's an exchange. But it ended up, ended up uh, exchanging back to like $5 or something. And, ah, okay. uh, um, and that can be a really hard lesson to be like, I do not want to sell my game for that cheap in that region. Right. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, Valve has uh, mechanisms to prevent people from like uh, falsely hopping regions to get a game for a cheaper price. Um, but yeah. the thing is, is that the uh, games markets are different everywhere um, because mm -hmm. of the, 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 the sort of economic um, uh, liquidity uh, and mobility of the populations in those in those places. Yeah. Um, and uh, I know in pricing widget satchel, I had a very hard time agreeing to those recommendations and I didn't agree right. to all of yeah. them um, mm -hmm. and knowing full well that it would have uh, dire consequences um, right. if, if for selling in those regions. Um, but it's definitely something that the developers um, uh, should decide on their own. Like it's, it's okay just to like see that recommendation and go for it, but you should at least yeah. understand, you should at least quickly do the calculation and know what you're selling your games for in those regions. Um, yeah. And so the fact that they offer that tool and that is, is really good because it means that you can actually compete in those markets. Um, but they should probably maybe do a better job communicating what's happening there. Um, yeah. But uh, other than that, um, for um, other platforms, you don't really have any tools for that. You have to do your own research. Um, and so, you, so uh, uh, the if you're going to sell a game on consoles or on other stores, might not be a bad idea to. And you're not planning on selling on Steam, which I don't know why you're not. Um, if you have a particular stance about that, that's a good resource to find that information. Um, if you're, you know, trying to figure out what what uh, what the relative cost in New Zealand would be or wherever, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. But um, I do want to bring back though, Mark. You were right that like games are cheaper to buy than they ever have been before. Yeah. Because like there are so many indie games being created now that are priced at twenty dollars or cheaper, mm -hmm. and there's a bunch of free to play models now. Um, so like you can get access to AAA games for free. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and and there are regular sales specifically. I mean, especially on Steam, but like in in all of the markets really mm -hmm. that like make games cheaper to purchase, even if they were a more expensive game at the yeah. get go. Um, and so like that, that's something that, uh, to keep in mind as a developer, if you're trying to sell your game that like, uh, people are thinking of games as a cheaper, as a cheaper medium now. Yeah. Actually, yeah. this is fascinating because I've been taking a class, uh, called digital media and culture. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, I have not liked it <laughs> because a lot of, like a couple of our classes have been, why do people take selfies? Which to be fair, can be interesting, but I don't care. <laughs> uh, I'm sure it's interesting to some people, mm -hmm. but like they, we actually did go over like the the um, the music industry and how the music industry has changed dramatically because of the uh, because of the introduction of how, being able to stream music. Yeah, like it's so it's so um, ubiquitous now mm -hmm. that um, people don't see much value in actually purchasing music and would rather just get access to streaming services so they can stream their music. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so record sales are very low and like I love, uh, there's not as much interest in going to live shows and stuff as there was in the past, largely because like they can access all of that music for free or for very cheap um, through services like Spotify or YouTube. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then it's and, pay and for that, play and Spotify or whoever pays the artist for every listen. Um, right. And so it's it's amortized over the over for a prescription uh, subscription cost. So it's not given away for free, but the actual yeah. ultimate it's based it's kind of like free to play in a sense. Like the the Kinda, the, the, yeah. the user treats it as free and then mm -hmm. uh but it's a this sort of like incredibly incredibly low cost commodity product now. 
Um, and or, and the way that that market works is like the the songs that get uh the yeah the more listens you get the more uh, money you get off of people's using streaming services. But like the the people who actually make most of the money from those services are like the top five percent or ten percent of songs that get regular listens. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like a lot of pop music and stuff get a lot of, a lot of the listens. Whereas the more niche uh, songs um, and artists that you could listen to get very, very few funds from it. Um, mm-hmm. it, it. It's become that kind of a service where I think people were thinking it was going to be more like a supermarket where like, um, because you, you know, everybody wants to get apples and stuff and everybody's trying to sell those, um, people will go to the store and go, oh, you know, I can get this uh, very obscure food that I really like. Um, and so they'll get a decent amount of sales from uh, people who are selling this obscure food can get these sales. Um, but what really is happening is the major everybody's going to the supermarket, quote unquote, to get apples, and nobody really is paying for obscure food. Right, the Dorians. Right. The Dorians or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and so I uh, I think there's a little bit of fear in the industry, in the video game industry, that mm-hmm. like that will happen to games. And like yeah. we've seen a little bit of that tr- like that kind of stuff happening with Stadia is mm-hmm. a streaming service for games. Mm-hmm. And I mean, as we said before, uh, games are cheaper to purchase than ever before. Yeah. Um, well, Stadia doesn't so, isn't uh, Stadia is not it, it. It does just sell games, right? Yeah. Like uh, that's you, true. you can get their subscription and it's like Xbox Gold or PlayStation Plus or whatever. But that's one of the yeah. misconceptions about Stadia is that it, it is it's like a service that ha- it's like a Netflix for games or something. Um, you're right. You're that's right. one of the yeah, reasons I why Stadia spoke. is a hard sell for a lot of people is that you, can, uh-huh. you still have to buy games for $50 or $60 or whatever. Yeah, um, I guess I, I, uh, I think the service I was thinking about was the i the i the iPhone service. What's that called? Oh, Apple Arcade. Yeah, Apple yeah. Arcade. That's yeah, a right. that's a streaming service. Yep, and, and that's that's like similar. Game Pass, where it's like a curated library, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. and Game Pass exists and stuff too. That's mm-hmm. another good point. Like all mm-hmm. of those those services are yeah. things now that people can access. And Epic Game right. Store will give away two free games every week, um, mm-hmm. and a lot of them are recent indies. Um, yeah. and, and those, when you download a copy, uh, Epic will pay the full price to the developer. So it's not quite the Spotify model, thankfully. Um, yeah. but, um, but in terms of user psychology, what reason does anybody have to buy any game ever again, the rest of their life, right? There's already yeah. a lot of places where they can get a lot of, as long as they don't worry about choosing it for themselves, but they ha- will have lots of options within that selection, letting other people curate it. And if you're not right. in that, in those libraries then you the psychology of users is now your game is a much harder sell at any price Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and not to mention that sales are so frequent that like even if like your game comes out reasonably priced people will go oh i'll just purchase that on the summer sale or whatever right and just wait and get it for a cheaper price so you end up making less money off of the sales anyways Mm -hmm. um so how the heck do you price your game (laughs) in a way that makes it tantalizing for consumers to purchase your product. Uh, I think that's something that we're struggling with as an industry to figure out because like there's not a clear there's not a clear metric for that. Yeah. And the ground uh, is shifting constantly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well yeah, like when like the N sixty four was out, like everybody just priced their games at sixty bucks because like everybody was doing it. No. That's not oh, true. Oh, then all right. And Nintendo sixty four games had random prices between sixty and Did ninety dollars. Yeah. Super Mario 64, oh, okay. I think it was 75 bucks um, oh, in 1996. I guess I wasn't money. buying the games. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're, a, you're a little younger, right? Yeah. I mean, true. I wasn't either. I was I was 10. So 
um, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, one of the things I think people are always surprised to learn is how expensive a Genesis game was or whatever. That's true. It, yeah, it, they, they were very expensive back then. But like but they were expensive. And I guess there was like a I want to say there was a smaller range in which they would price games. They were all still on the upper end of pricing for the most part, mm -hmm. I think. It's like $75 in old-timey money, too. Yeah, right, exactly. yeah. That's a lot more like, money than it would be now. Last century money. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, I guess like one, one thing to consider when you're trying to price your game is that I think a lot of uh, players view your price as like the quality of the game that they will end up getting. Right. Even if that is not... Because they know nothing else about your game. Right. The yeah. Price yeah. Is Even if post. like they yeah. read the little paragraph of the snippet and it's like, oh, this looks interesting. But like, how much is how quality is it? Um, they look at the price and go, oh, this is only five bucks. It's probably not that great of a game. So maybe I'll buy it because like I can spend a weekend on it or something. Um, there's a bunch of different ways to see it in that way. But like, I think generally speaking, games that are like 20 bucks or less, they'll think a lot of. Well, actually, it's more like maybe it's like 10 10 or 15 bucks or less. Mm -hmm. um, people will think that of that game as like a lower quality game where they're not necessarily going to get a ton of uh, content for the money that they get, but like yeah. it'll, it could still be worth the price. Um, and then like the cheaper it gets, the less they expect from the game. Yeah. Like if your game is a dollar, they're not going to expect a lot. Right, right. Yeah, and um, I think the the all the mixed messaging and weird psychology and different business models makes it so that and this has been, I, I think, people have a hard time believing it, but uh, uh, occasionally someone will come out with the data to prove it, which is that if, mm -hmm. if you sell your game for $6, it will not sell better than if you sell it for $12. Like, it will yeah. not sell a single copy more. And so why would you sell it? Why would you price it that low? And so uh, th there's, you know, there's a lot of uh, people wondering and not uh, solid answers as to, like, what the perfect price for a video game is. But, like, when you say, am I going to price it for $15 or $20? Like, you know, it could be, well, this psychology ends up being like about round numbers. So $15 is like indie priced, like, uh, but yeah. $16 is way too expensive for an indie, like in a weird mm -hmm. way. And then $20 yeah. is like, okay, what, what does $20 mean? Right. Or what does right. $30 <laughs> means a double a high, high quality game that uh it that is it, it you might think is a triple a AAA game if you squint a little bit like that's but that's not yeah. true like that's just what people <laughs> uh -huh. think and whereas i think like twenty dollars is like well what is that even right but right and that may not be true soon enough and all of it comes down to like um like a herd mentality like if we all priced our game at twenty five dollars that's what indie games would cost like mm. you know yeah um and i think the, the the market is so huge and the potential market is so la large that it's hard to think of it ter in terms of every dollar more means that many fewer purchasers. Um, yeah. Like a, as mm -hmm. if it's a, a calculation you can make. But so much of it is based on these like tiers and how, how Steam does it. Um, like what do games launch at on Steam? How many Steam games launch with a, with a, a launch discount? What is the average launch discount percentage? It all feeds yeah. into that. And it's just so much data that when you are a one individual developer trying to come up with the one price for your one game, like, there's just no answer. There's no answer, you know? Yeah. You know well, what? Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Ellen. I was going to say, you know what this kind of reminds me of? It's kind of like completely unrelated industry, but the conversation kind of reminds me of, of this would be like pricing your food. If you're mm -hmm. someone yeah. making food mm -hmm. or some kind of restaurant or all different kinds of restaurants, how do you price your food? Because like, 
some of the some of my favorite games of all time are where I purchased for under fifteen dollars. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and they didn't have a ton of content, but the content they did have was so compelling that I, you know, it's has stuck with me. I bought the soundtrack. I follow the fan art communities, and I don't think that I don't think I've had that kind of really hard hitting experience with any game that's been over twenty five dollars. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which is kind of like if you can think of an analogy, like. The restaurants I go and visit over and over again are the ones that I get to enjoy with my friends, like Northbound Smokehouse. We have a nice, it's like a nice outdoor patio. It's beautiful. Um, pergola with like hot vines and they have great home, like great microbrew beer. Mm. And you can get a burger there or fries and things for like less, like $10. You know, it's not like, it's not like a high priced restaurant where i'm going to be buying a multi-course meal and you know asking a somalia what kind of wine i should be getting like that those are fun too but the the places like the restaurants and to to just finish the analogy the games that like stick with me in my soul are not necessarily the really expensive ones well it's it's about the value you get out of it right so you're describing an experience which is it's not that you like it because it's cheaper it's because the right. things you get at higher costs don't have a lot of value to you. Yeah, and that might just be me as a consumer of both food and games. Um, <laughs> don't eat all? your games. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't do that. That's, that's bad. Like, the, the play date is super cute, <laughs> and you probably could crunch it. Don't. <laughs> like, there is no direct connection between the things that I'm linking here. But, yeah, it's, it is, that is interesting. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know if that really... Should that kind of should that kind of knowledge that like there isn't necessarily a direct correlation between the emotional impact of a game and the price of a game for the consumer should that weigh into a dev's decision about pricing? I, um, yeah, maybe. Yeah, I, well, it, I, I think that's fascinating that you bring that up because I think that with AAA games that are almost always priced at sixty bucks, those games have so much content in them that like you could play that game for several months and you'd still like you'd still have more content to go through mm-hmm. because like they yeah i mean assuming how quickly you consume the content obviously um and well, so there, like there those are games 60 are games there are 60 dollar games that are just 15 hour adventures um, that's true but, but you know what? i feel like those are rare most of the time yeah i think it's this that 60 dollars is so standardized and that's a benefit of yeah. standardization is that then players then they have no psychology about it so games are 60 dollars. like that's what they right. think about uh, like triple a console games and so yeah. however long they are however much content they have if they're a, an ongoing game that they can play for years or something they can finish in a weekend they will come away from that thinking that was worth 60 dollars. indie games it's the psychology of what the price is worth, as you described earlier, is much, much stronger, right? Mm-hmm. And as you're playing, you're, const- you're constantly thinking, like, was this worth the $25? Was this worth the $8 I spent? Um, and when you go to review it on Steam, the question is, is, is this worth the money? Whereas nobody yeah. reviews a AAA game that way, right? Because the- I, I, I disagree with that, I think. You think so? I think that, like, yeah, because I think that people, like, will look at a game, and if, it's, if it costs 60 bucks and then you only get five hours, 10 hours of content, then they'll feel like they'll, ju- they'll judge it based on the amount of content they get. Like the, the price in AAA games is standardized so that they're 60 bucks. Yeah. Um, and then like they get extra money for microtransactions or whatever. But like uh, if like a game like Resident Evil 3 uh, came out recently and I think that the game 
is only like about a five hour long campaign. It looks good. Right. Like the remake. It's right. The quality. Yeah, the remake. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it looks good and like the quality is there, but like it's just just not as a lot of content mm-hmm. unless like you replay the same campaign over and over and over again. And so it's very different from an Assassin's Creed or uh, a Mario game or something where like there's tons of levels or tons of side quests or tons of there's so much content in them. Mm-hmm. And so I think people are comparing like Assassin's Creed, blah blah blah, to this to Resident Evil Three the remake. And going, oh well, this game only has five hours of content. It's not really worth the sixty dollars price. Do you think that's more about it being a remake? Like, no, I don't think it's. I don't think it's because of a remake. Okay. I think it's because of the content. Yeah, yeah. There's probably a there's probably a threshold, right? A minimum threshold. Um, yeah. So um, maybe we're both right. Um, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, there's there's a there's a a point at which you could say this wasn't worth the AAA price. But once you've mm-hmm. crossed that point, I think I think pet players stop thinking about it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're. I think that's a good point. Yeah. Um, but I mean, that makes it so that like you have to get to that threshold. Oh yeah, yeah. That's why you can't sell your indie game for sixty dollars, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So you it, should be able still, to, though. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Because like you could put in a lot of time into making this game, and it's, that's what you have to consider with the price too. Is like you yeah. spent one one year, two years, three years, ten years working on this game. Yeah. And you need to try to make some of that back. Yeah, thinking um, about the food so, that Ellen, you were saying, like the mm-hmm. cost of like how you price a hamburger is, I mean, unless you, you know, are like in the luxury restaurant game, um, you price it based on the cost to make it and the, uh, uh, the and the materials it took. Right. So labor costs, overhead, the tiny fraction of the rent, you know, whatever. And, you know, it's yeah. it's a challenge, right, to, to a good price. And there's psychology, too. Right. Like people will pay ten dollars for a hamburger and fries. At a, at a sit down restaurant, but they'll probably pay six dollars at, at a fast food place. Right. So, mm. you know, there, there's some psychology <laughs> at play to, regardless of cost. But it that is a much larger driving factor, whereas with video games like it, there have been people who have begged developers to actually consider this to track like how much it costs to make their game and then price their game accordingly. But no one on earth has ever done that, as far as I know. <laughs> like, because you can't. But then the flip side of that is that the, the there's no there's almost no overhead to selling copies. So if you make a game and you spend a lot of time, if you spend a little time on it and you sell a million copies, it didn't cost you more to 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 make more copies. All right, because right. we're not right. putting them in boxes anymore. And so that can that can really fool you into thinking that. And that's what the iPhone model was: is is apps are a dollar, right? And so mm-hmm. uh, it's fine because you can sell so many of them. But like um, that ended up that's the death knell for pricing in this industry. Right. Um, and I'm sure that's not news to anybody. Um, but uh, but yeah, we don't we don't think about what it costs to make it. And and the players certainly don't care because they can't right. they can't see that all the time. Right. Yeah. I think, part, you know, we talked about this a little bit with Ryan Sumo about transparency and. Mm-hmm. um Part of the reason I think part of the reason that we could say players don't care is because players don't know, you yeah, know, like exactly. First, I hate tracking time, working on stuff. I really hate <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, like now I feel like, well, maybe I should be doing more of a, you know, tracking of how you know, the next game that I work on, maybe I should do more to track how much time I spend on whatever I'm doing, because yeah. then that would be an interesting, like, even if it doesn't necessarily represent all the work that goes into that game, it, just showing a little slice of what it took to make that little piece of content or whatever, you know, whatever my contribution is mm-hmm. could, that's, that's could be helpful and in moving the conversations around pricing forward, you know, for the whole community, for the industry at large, like between devs and consumers. Yeah. Um, 
I wanted to just kind of take a personal take on this and talk a little bit about how my husband, Eric, and I think about ROI on games mm-hmm. totally, totally differently. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, we think about it as ROI, right? So like uh, the way that he thinks about, you know, investing in a game is how much content he gets per dollar. Yeah. So that makes sense for him, I think, as a player, because when he gets a game, he just plays it until there's nothing left. He yeah. tends he sometimes sometimes does that. If he finds a game that he really likes, he just plays it until there's every single number has been counted, every single tile has been explored, every single storyline has been, you know, completed and every single quest has been checked. Yeah. Um so I think that makes sense for him and as a as a player who's a little bit more completionist than I am, uh it makes sense for him to do that, right? Because if he spends $60 on a game but then he's play he plays it for 180 hours. Like that's a that's a really good price per you know that's yeah, really good right. price per hour. You're not going to be able to find any form of um, entertainment or activity. I think that that has a better price per hour. For me though, I really think of it. I don't. I think of it more in terms of like the emotional impact mm-hmm. um, that I get from that game. And so the price doesn't really matter so much to me because if it really hit me hard, then it's re- it's almost worth any price and like if i if i think about it like going to a live theater can be a really emotional experience or like going to a live concert can be a really emotional experience and i'll drop you know sig- sometimes significantly more than 60 dollars <laughs> mm-hmm. to go to an experience like that and that concert or that play is only going to last three or four hours yeah so if i if i play a game that cost 60 dollars that gives me an emotional experience as powerful as one that I would get if I went to something that was like a stage play or a concert for a group that really like really that I really love. Yeah. That's still a good return on investment. Yeah. Th- there's just so many factors in like pricing the game, pricing yeah. the game that it's really difficult to know how to do it. Yeah. Um, I guess just, I guess like it, it, if I were to make some general guidelines as to how you could improve or how to how to price your game i would just think about like how much content that players will experience or players are likely to experience to be clear Mm -hmm. um in your game and then price it according to that and according to like uh uh, traditional models so like for example uh if if you think that your game has about as much quality as a popular indie fighting game then you should price your game around that. Yeah, um, right. Like all of this, like what uh, you should price games at is uh, is all well and good for like if you can dictate the market. But if you're an individual developer, you really do just have to you have to uh, follow what's there, right? You, yeah, you, you gotta you gotta stay competitive. You have to survive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I guess that's the as, as a general rule. Look at how other games uh, of your amount of content um how they're pricing their games yeah and price it, price your game accordingly yeah and I'll, I'll say the thing we've said on the show before but like your game should not, like i don't care what your game is it should not be ten dollars it should be fifteen dollars mm-hmm. if you're if you think your game if you think you should price your game at five dollars if you think it's like a little simple thing it should be five dollars just sell it for ten dollars like you should like um you and you you know you'll put it out and it won't sell that much and you'll really think oh i should have priced it cheaper no you wouldn't have sold more um, mm-hmm. I think that's, uh, you know, that, that's, um, 
you know, that's not a 100% true fact for every scenario, but it's like a 95% true fact I, I will need to venture is that uh, indie developers, especially if it's their first title, will always scare themselves into pricing it too low. They'll put it on sale too early and they'll, you know, and that's just how it goes. And, you know, once it's out and it sells as well, then you can start slashing prices to sort of try to uh, 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 gin up as many sales as you can. Um, you know, once once it's out there and you and it and it has a real, it's made its impact, right? Then you can start putting it for eighty percent off if you really have to. Um, but when you for your initial price for your game, it's so easy to just to like damn yourself with a seven ninety nine or whatever because you think, oh, it's only going to take two hours to play. So it's like I don't know. I mean, let let people criticize it for for it being too short. But the thing is, is you will still sell the same amount of copies. Um, you know. Um, so that's just yeah. as much as like we, you know, the, the it's very dire. Uh, um, I think that's that remains at least my personal recommendation. And if you two can sign on, it could be the recommendation from the show is that like most indie games should cost at least fifteen dollars, regardless of what's in it. Um, but you, but at, but there are certain times when you say like this has enough in it for me to sell for more than that, or this has so little in it that I, I I'll sell I will sell it for five or ten. Like that. There's there are ways, but. It has to have very little in it, I think, for you, for me to be, oh, to, for me to let you, if it was up to me, price it as low as five dollars. Yeah. Well, one one example of a game that's fifteen bucks and is really only like a twenty minute experience mm-hmm. is um, Thirty Fights of Loving. Yes. Um, yeah. 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 It's a twenty minute long game, and it's fifteen. And it's fifteen bucks, but like it's it's an experience uh, that I think is worth the price. And its novelty um, might help it get away with that. Mm-hmm. in the psychology of gamers is that it's so different and so weird and it's yeah th- that i think I, it's it's i should say it's cheaper than it has been in the past because this game has been out for a long time oh but, yeah years and years uh, yeah. yeah so like it's five bucks now but like it earned that price yeah because it's been out for so long but even <laughs> so. a 20 minute game at five dollars is something that people would have a hard, like developers would have a hard time pricing their game that high uh, for a 20 right. minute experience um but um uh, so even that is still the case but yeah as it originally launched um, so yeah, don't be afraid. I, it's because uh, it, because that psychology that Stephen was mentioning. If it costs fifteen dollars, people will think it's worth fifteen dollars. Um, mm-hmm. And and so this is a case where we all as indie developers kind of have to do our part to hold back the tide, if that makes sense. Yeah. And um, uh, part of me is is willing to admit that maybe uh, each of us might suffer a little bit. Like I don't have the numbers in front of me. Like I do believe. You won't sell fewer copies at fifteen than you will at ten, but maybe mm. you will. Maybe you'll sell a few. Maybe you all, your ultimate profit will be slightly less. Um, I don't know that. I don't really believe it, but um, um, but who's to say exactly? Um, yeah. But if everybody gave in to that fear, then suddenly all games would be ten dollars, and soon enough all games would be five dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it is kind of up to us uh, to you know thinking going back to leadership like. Uh, you know, if we have, we are we're all in this together, and all of our actions influences each other's actions. And so, um, please don't price your game too low because it hurts all of us. Yeah, don't make it a race to the bottom. Yeah, like, march march on your path, and what is it? What's the the the, the like no impact camping rule? Is leave the place better than you found it. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. <laughs> make make the space for indie games and indie game developers better than you found it. Mm-hmm. Don't price your game too low. Hey, that's our show. If you liked it, please leave a five-star review in your favorite podcast app. I mean, this is free and you get a, quite a lot of content, so I'd say it's worth <laughs> at least five stars. 
uh, if yeah. not numbers of dollars, but we don't ask for that. So please. <laughs> and uh, hey, while you're doing that, uh, tell all your friends about the show as well. Uh, and if you're interested in any of the topics we talked about in this or other episodes, be sure to check out our website, NiceGames.Club, for more show notes and links to resources. Like with playtesting our games, we're always looking for feedback on the show. So you can go to NiceGames.Club slash feedback to tell us what you think. You can get in touch with us directly on Twitter, at NiceGamesClub, where Dale tweets game dev resources and pictures of cats. That's a promise. Uh, or by email at contact at NiceGames.Club. Uh, ask us questions or give us suggestions for topics. So until we start again, remember to... Play nice. And make nice. Okay, should we do the blur? Let's do it. Uh, before we start, should we do both of the blurs? Uh, let's do the yeah. second one and then do. Let's do the, the second, second one after the fact uh, in a separate okay. recording. Sounds good. Okay. Sounds good. As long as I don't forget. Yes. Right. We, we won't. It says blur. Okay. We might, but let's not worry about it yet. <laughs> <laughs> As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.